Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This is a sermon series we started now two weeks ago where we are attacking the number one spiritual problem for North Americans, at least in my opinion, which is hurry. Uh, We as Christians claim to walk with God, and yet very often we are sprinting through life and God is sauntering along behind. We want to be with him, but we refuse to live at the same pace as God, and so we are weary weary and burdened and tired and busy and overwhelmed and anxious, and the list goes on, doesn't it? In the first two weeks of this series, we just identified the problem, right? Here's the problem of hurry in our culture. This is why we're overwhelmed and anxious and worried and all these things. And we also saw Jesus, the most unhurried man who ever lived, because what we found out is that he had no fear of death, and you also can have no fear of death, knowing that your death is just the doorway to eternity with God and ultimately the resurrection of your body, that you have nothing to rush to because you're going to live forever. Why would you worry about getting to the next thing right now? Jesus then invited us into that rest last week when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And remember, we learned that that yoke was identified with just a couple word phrase that I said numerous times at the end of the sermon. Do you remember what that phrase was? Let me say it. Otherwise, I'm going to preach last week's sermon. (laughs) I'm serious. What did I say last week? (laughs) You don't have to, right? You're lucky I'm going to have grace on you and I'm going to preach this week's sermon instead. You don't have to, right? That's the essence of the gospel. Christ has done everything for you. He has forgiven all your sins, given you his righteousness. He has taken care of everything that is required of your soul. And he promises that until you get to be with him in glory, he will be on top of all of it. So you don't have to be. You don't have to. Now, I would like to believe that all of you just took that phrase, you don't have to, and went back to your lives and immediately applied it, and now you're all unhurried and peaceful people this week, right? Probably not. Um, Because the fact is, even though you maybe were able to assent to that idea being the gospel, it was really hard to apply. Uh, to put it in a different term, uh, maybe if you sat down at a piano, you might be able to know that a piano is a beautiful instrument and that it can make amazing music, but if you don't know how to play it, it can't produce that music. In the same way, you can know intellectually that you don't have to is the gospel, but until you're able to press it into your life, to practice it, it will not become the way that you live. And so for the next three weeks, this week and the next two, we're going to get super practical with this, with a thing that theological type people like to call spiritual disciplines. Uh, Spiritual disciplines, I'm going to explain that term a little bit later, but basically the idea is this. These are drills to practice saying you don't have to. They're drills to practice saying you don't have to. If the gospel is you don't have to and you are practicing doing this regularly, when those big times come up where you are hurried and anxious and worried and overwhelmed, these drills will have prepared you to face those moments. Right in the same way that I would start you on the piano with your scales and your arpeggios and all these things, well, we have to start with the little things, the little disciplines that help us learn how to say you don't have to, how to to bring on that yoke that Jesus says is for us. So here's what I want to do today. I want to take first, the first half of the sermon and just talk about spiritual disciplines as a concept, what they are, why we should do them, how to do them well, and how to not do them well, because I don't think it's just, it's just something that's not in our consciousness as North American Christians, probably just because we're hedonistic, pleasure-seeking people and we can't say no to ourselves. We really have to work on this and understand it. Um, and then after we explore what spiritual disciplines are, we're going to go into one of those spiritual disciplines today. We're going to do three more the next two weeks, but today we'll just get one, and that's silence and solitude. Okay, so first, spiritual disciplines. 
Um, I want to take three passes at this, three attempts to teach it to you, because uh, I think there's three different ways you can kind of understand it and you'll get the whole picture of it. So if you're following along in your notes, I gave you three blanks, not just to write down what these three ways of looking at it are, but maybe if you want to add some extra notes um, there on these three ways of thinking about spiritual disciplines. So pass number one. Uh, many of you know my dad is a church planter in northern Idaho, so he's just a couple hours south of the Canadian border into British Columbia. And that's wine country um, for northern Idaho. And so his church that he planted there, he called the Vine. The Vine. Um, but it wasn't just because of the wine country that his church is in. It was also because of these words of Jesus. If uh, I am the vine and you are the branches, and if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's a little bit of a double entendre going here with the words of Jesus and the, the climate that they're in. Um, but what I've noticed is now that because my dad has this church, my mom and dad have kind of got obsessed with like grapes and purple colored things. Um, whenever I go to their house, it always seems like there's more decorations that have grape themes to them, uh, to the point where they actually have planted a grapevine in their backyard on a trellis. I asked them to take a picture of it for us so we can see what it looks like. Uh, they had planted these grapes in the backyard a couple years ago, and now actually finally this year, they're starting to get grapes that are growing on it, which is really cool uh, for them. Why do I tell you all this? Because I believe Jesus is super intentional when he talks. Like the God who knows all things and had eternity past to plan what he was going to say when he came to earth, I think he's super intentional about the way he talks. And when he talks about spiritual growth, he talks about it in these terms, organic grapevine growth. And there is something for us to learn in there. I actually think there are multiple things for us to learn in there. So let me give you a couple. The first is that we as Christians, as those growing in Jesus, need structure. You understand how grapevines grow? They grow around these trellises or maybe a tree or something like this because they need the structure in order to hold up the weight of the grape bunches that they are eventually going to grow. If you leave a, a grapevine on the ground, it's not going to have the strength to hold up grape bunches. So it has to grow up something, attach itself to that thing, and then it can start to produce fruit. The same is true for Christians. We need structure. That's what Jesus is saying when he says that I am a vine and you are the branches of that vine. You need structure. Maybe you notice this when I say you should be in worship every week, right? If you're in town, you're here. It's not because I need you to be here as if my ego is built up by this or, or our church needs you to be here as if you know, we're going to fold if we don't have enough people. No, it's because you need it because your spiritual life needs structure, I think if Jesus were to come back to our society today, he would look at us and see us as a Christian society without spiritual structure. He would see Christians going from church to church to church based on whatever church they kind of like at that time in their life, whichever one fulfills their needs, not actually building themselves into the structure of a community that's got sinners in it. He would see Christians who are inconsistent in their Bible study, their worship life, their small group attendance, because frankly, it just doesn't work for them, or it's not their style, or it's kind of boring. He would see uh, people who are living their spiritual life as if Christianity is the social club that they're part of, the hobby that they engage in, but that's it. Just as a tangent, I'm reading a book right now about um, Islam and what Islam thinks of Christianity. And one of the things that it notes in there is that when Muslims convert to Christianity, they almost never convert to contemporary style churches. They always convert to traditional style churches because they see those churches as reverent as ones who are, have stayed the same for a long period of time. Now we can argue about 
the merits of that either way, but let's just see the reality. Much of North American Christianity is not rooted, it is not structured, it is, how do I feel about my spirituality today? We need structure. But secondly, we need the same structure as Jesus. Right, what's interesting about Jesus' words is not what he says so much as what he doesn't say. I think if I were writing Jesus' words down, I would have expected him to say, I am the tree and you are the branches. Well, I think for two reasons. First of all, there's a whole lot of biblical imagery about trees, right? The tree of life that starts the Bible off, the tree of life that finishes the Bible off. Even the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that he's a spout, sprout from the stump of Jesse. And then put on top of that, just how we kind of perceive Jesus, like he's rooted and he's strong and he's, he's solid. And, and even if we're blowing around in the wind, he is always there to support us. It would be really easy for us to assume he would say something like, I am the tree, but he doesn't. He says, I am the vine, which means that he perceives himself as needing structure. Isn't that interesting? That's where the idea of spiritual disciplines comes from. That people looked at the life of Jesus and said, what kind of lifestyle did Jesus live that he was so in touch with God in his heart that he experienced such peace and such rest that he was afraid in all situations? And they said, that kind of stuff? Well, if he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, that's probably the stuff we should repeat. The same structure that Jesus had. And so the spiritual disciplines that, that we're looking at in this series and any, any other number of spiritual disciplines you might be able to name, they're all based on the life of Jesus. Because Jesus needed structure and says that we ought to grow on that same structure like a vine grows its branches, right? Something else, number three, structure doesn't cause growth, but it does facilitate it. So sometimes the criticism of spiritual disciplines is that uh, if you're talking about spiritual disciplines, you're talking about works all the time. And we know that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. Jesus' work, not our work, so stop talking about your behavior so much, pastor. You're not preaching the gospel. To which I'd say, of course, absolutely. You can plant a grapevine in the ground with no trellis and it will be alive, but it will not grow well. It will not produce abundant fruit. And what the Bible says is that the spiritual disciplines are like this trellis. It's that structure that isn't itself the growth. It isn't causing the growth. It's just simply facilitating the growth. To say it differently, if you put a trellis in the ground, you don't just expect that magically grapevines are going to grow on it. You need to plant those grapevines. You need to give them water and sunlight. In the same way, you can't just do spiritual disciplines and hope that you're going to grow spiritually. That's not how it works. But these spiritual disciplines are the structure that your faith can grow on so that it is strong, so that it can produce that good fruit. The last thing that I think Jesus is saying about us when he says we are the, vine, the branches of his vine is that growth is slow. Maybe you heard me mention this. Uh, my parents have now, after just a couple years of putting the, that grapevine up, are finally getting grapes. Well, why? Because the grapes need to build their structure into the trellis in order to have the strength to produce fruit. And the same thing is true of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, most often when I hear people have tried the spiritual disciplines and don't like them, it's usually because they tried them for like a week or maybe a month and then they said, oh, that didn't really work. Do you realize that's the exact same attitude as planting a, a grapevine near a trellis, coming back in 15 minutes and saying, why are there no grapes? It doesn't work like that. It's organic growth. It takes time. It takes consistency. It takes being in these practices for, I would say, years maybe even before you really start to see the abundant fruit that can come from them. 
Now you might say, that's hard. That's too much. Well, we'll get there. But Jesus said this is valuable. And if you care about Jesus and you care about what Jesus says, I mean, this is worth thinking about, right? So to summarize, spiritual disciplines are the trellis structure that allow us to grow in healthy ways as Christians. Okay, that's pass number one. Pass number two. Uh, Let's just look at the phrase spiritual disciplines, okay? Um, First, discipline. I think this is a good definition of discipline. It's any activity I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. So if you follow along, it's something that I can do right now by my own strength that if I repeat it enough times will allow me to do something that I cannot do right now by my own strength. Running a marathon is the easiest example. Right? Most of us can't go out there this afternoon and run 40K. But most of us can go outside and go for a walk this afternoon. And if we go for a walk every single day and maybe speed up that walk and eventually get to a jog and eventually get to a run and make that run into 5K, 10K, 20K, and so on, we eventually, maybe many of us, could run 40K. It just would require discipline. It would require these small actions that I can do today in order to grow into something that I currently cannot do by my own effort. So that's normal discipline, but this isn't normal discipline. This is spiritual discipline. So what's your spirit? Well, if you follow along with the newsletters that I send out every week of all our events and so on, I put in there some commentary two weeks ago on what your spirit is. And if you didn't read it, here's this Cliff Notes version. Your spirit is the power source that your body and soul plug into. Your body and soul, your whole self, your whole being is running on energy, but that energy is spiritual because you were created by a spiritual God. You don't just simply run on the calories that you consume and the sleep that you get. You run on the very energy that God has given you through his spirit. Uh, The problem for many of us is that we are plugging ourselves into something that has insufficient energy. To put it in electrician terms, when you plug in your dryer or your stovetop, you use a different type of outlet. It looks like this. Because... The normal outlet that you plug your phone charger or your desk lamp or your coffee maker in is not strong enough to run that appliance. You need a different type of outlet. You need more power to that appliance. In the same way, Christians often plug themselves into things that are insufficient to give us the energy necessary to live. So we might plug ourselves into vacation. Right? If I only get a vacation, then I'll feel okay. Well, vacations give you a boost of energy, don't they? But it, it only lasts so long, maybe until Monday. Or we might try to find that energy in love, right? If we find the right person to be their special someone or we have really good friendships, like, yeah, that gives us energy totally. But but if it's human love, it's inconsistent. And if a person moves away or dies, right, they're not going to have sufficient spiritual energy. Or maybe we, we plug ourselves into success, right? If only I advance and get more money, get a better job, get into a house, whatever the thing is that makes me feel like I'm accomplishing something in life. That makes me feel full of energy for a while, but it only lasts until the next thing that you need to accomplish. That body, soul, energy source that you need to fill up, your spirit, it needs to be plugged into the right thing, and the only thing that is sufficient to power it for day in, day out living is the Holy Spirit, God himself, the eternal and almighty God. And so the difference between disciplines and spiritual disciplines is that disciplines are learning how to increase my own power, my ability to run. A spiritual discipline is learning how to plug into Jesus' power. 
It's learning to practice plugging the outlet or plugging the plug into the right outlet so that I can go through my daily life and all the struggles that are in that life. Okay, third pass at this. I'm sure many of you have seen the movie The Karate Kid, Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. If you haven't seen it, that's on you at this point. You remember that in the movie, uh, Mr. Miyagi tells Daniel to do these actions that seem to be pointless, right? Paint the fence and wax on, wax off and and sand the floor. And and Daniel is just frustrated by these things because he doesn't see the point to them. What Mr. Miyagi knows is that he is making Daniel go through the motions of karate moves and that he's making him do them in low-consequence situations so that he's ready to use them in high-consequence situations. So it doesn't really matter all that much if the the fence is painted correctly, but it does matter if you parry somebody trying to punch you in the face. And so Mr. Miyagi says, practice this when the consequences are low so that when the consequences are high, you know what to do. The same is true with spiritual disciplines. They are the little practices, the things that might feel pointless and empty and, and like, I'm not really sure why I'm going through this, but they are setting you up for that moment when inevitably Satan, the world, or your sinful nature comes to attack you, to tear you down. And you have the words, you have the discipline ready to fight off that attack. Okay, three passes at it. Let's summarize it like this. You need spiritual disciplines for the times of growth, like the trellis, right? That allows you to grow like the vine. For the times of trial, like Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, and for the daily grind, the things you do every day, or maybe to say it differently, you need spiritual disciplines for the good times, the bad times, and all the normal times in between. You with me on this? Do you see the value of this? Like, not like, do you just agree with, oh, that makes sense, but like, I actually want that in my life? I think we all really need to think about that. Because it's easy to look at those things and say, oh, that'd be nice. But Jesus is calling us into this. So let's look at one. Silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Um, if you're younger than me, you maybe have never experienced this, but there's this thing we used to have back in the day. Some of you are older, you know about this thing. Um, it was called boredom. Have you ever heard of it? It was this crazy thing. Like when I was a kid, I would occasionally say this. I know you can't believe this. But I would say to my mom, I'm bored. I can't imagine saying that now. There was this, these crazy things that people used to do. You young people, you don't understand. People would like get on a plane and they would fly. And then when they were done with their book, they would stare out the window. Like no podcasts, no games on your phone, no screen on the back of the chair in front of you to watch a movie. They would just stare out the window. Or this other thing that people would do, they would stand in line. And that's it. <laughs> like they wouldn't pull out their phone. Maybe the extroverts would try to strike up a conversation and the introverts would hate it, but mostly people would stand in line. We don't have space like that in our life anymore, do we? Kevin McSpadden, he's the guy who reported that fact that I told you back um, in the first week of the series, how human beings, uh, because of smartphones, have smaller uh, attention spans than goldfish. Uh, He also reported in 2015 that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. 77% of young adults said that. In 2015. Now, the crazy thing I think about that statistic is that in 2015, only 64% of the adult population owned a smartphone. Which means that number 77 is probably low. 
Because even back in 2017, or 2015, excuse me, there was a, a decent amount of the young person population that didn't even have a phone. John Mark Homer says it like this in his book. He says, pretty much the only place we can be alone with our thoughts anymore is in the shower. And it's only a matter of time until our devices are completely waterproof, which in turn will trigger the apocalypse. I love that quote, and I laugh at it every time I read it. Not just because it's, it's spot on, but it's spot on me. <laughs> um, I have a waterproof Bluetooth speaker in my shower that I listen to podcasts on while I'm, I'm showering. So all I'm saying is get ready, the apocalypse is coming. We don't have the space, right? We don't have the space to be with our own thoughts, to, to be bored, to think about things, to, to understand what's going on around us. We're just flying through life. Remember that image, not like a scuba diver going down deep, but a jet skier going across the surface, barely touching anything. Now, trust me, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I'm not saying we should go back to some pre-technology Luddite experience, but what I'm asking us to do is to evaluate what does our life look like? And does it honor God? And is it moving closer to God, or are the things that we are using, our devices, are they pulling us away from God? You know, if, if our pastor is trying to tell us something through his sermons, our friend is trying to tell us something through our conversations, our, our spouse is trying to tell us something through her body language, our children are trying to tell us something through their questions, how many of us just completely miss it because our world is so noisy? Silence and solitude, that's, that's what we need. And Jesus knew this, by the way. The text that I picked for this sermon was just two verses from, the Luke, from Luke's gospel. He, he says, or excuse me, Luke says about Jesus, yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Just understand the context of this. Jesus is growing in popularity. There are people who want him to do the thing he came to do. Right, to heal people and, and to preach the gospel to, him, to them. And, and he pulls back. He goes to lonely places and he prays. You know, just in the gospel of Luke, so there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just in the gospel of Luke, Luke records that Jesus got away by himself for silence and solitude to pray nine times. And if you were to graph those nine times on the trajectory of the book, like if you would match it with the, the rising action of the book that leads up to the, the climax, which is Jesus' death and resurrection, as the tension mounts, as the, as the plot thickens, Jesus is getting away more and more and more. When things are getting harder, Jesus is finding more and more silence and solitude. Now let me ask you, is that the same as our lives? When things get busy, when things get hectic, when we get stressed, do we find more time for silence and solitude or do we run on to the next thing? Making sure I get everything done. You remember that place uh, where Jesus faces off with Satan? Right? Satan comes to Jesus and he gives him these three temptations. Turn these stones into bread, jump off the top of the temple, and if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms, kingdoms of the world. Do you remember this episode? Do you remember what happened right before that? Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And the Greek word, by the way, for wilderness is the exact same Greek word that Luke uses here to describe lonely places. And John Mark Homer makes this, this observation. I think it's really astute. Many people, as they read the story of Jesus facing off with Satan, they see the 40 days in the wilderness and they think like Jesus is getting weaker so that he can identify with our weakness as he faces off with Satan. But I don't think that's right. Because what does that prove? Like, does Jesus get bonus points for beating Satan while he's weak? 
No, I actually think that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to do exactly what he was doing in Luke's gospel, to gain spiritual strength. He knew that Satan was coming and he needed all of his spiritual resources at his disposal to face off with Satan. And then think about us. How we don't think Satan is even that big of a deal. Well, we're okay. But Jesus sees 40 days of preparation necessary to face off with Satan. See, Jesus saw the discipline of silence and solitude as necessary for his spiritual health. And so he also calls us into it. Now, silence and solitude, it is two words, but it really is one big concept. So I want to pull the two parts apart and then put them back together for you. So let's first talk about silence. What is this silence and solitude, specifically the silence that we're talking about? Um, Silence consists of two types of silence. True silence is deeper than just the noises that you hear. It's both the silencing of external noise and the silencing of internal noise. So external noise is easy to have. Uh, identify, right? It's the, the child that's asking you a question. It's the music playing in the background. It's the TV in the other room. It's the conversation somebody's having. It's the cars going down the road. It's the planes flying overhead. You know external noise. Although it's hard in a city to get away from external noise, I believe everyone actually can do it. It might require you to get up a little bit early or to ask your spouse to watch the kids, but I think every one of us can find external silence. The problem is I don't think we necessarily want to all the time. And here's why. Because when all the external noise goes away, then we're left with the internal noise. And you know the internal noise. The constant monologue in your head, replaying those lousy conversations, remembering those things you did that you can't undo. The criticism of who you are because you think to yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not succeeding enough, I'm not living up to the expectations. If only I could be this, if only I could have this, if only I could do this, then things would be okay. And then the self-justifying, right? But I can't because I'm in this life situation or in this family or this person is this way. On top of that, it's the catastrophizing of some events. It's the idealizing of other hopes and futures for us. It's that constant noise you hear in your own head. And I think that's scary. Our internal noise is like a room in our house that we keep like shoving things in, closing the door really quickly and hoping that the problem goes away. We clean the rest of the house, we fill it up with external noise, but in the back of our mind, we remember that room still exists and all of the mess that's in there needs to be taken care of. And so we try our best to drown out the internal noise with all the external noise. But true silence is both. True silence is finding both external and internal silence. And so part of this is going to be finding external silence so that you have the space and time to deal with your internal noise. Right? In the same way that you eventually got to open the door to that room and find out what's behind it, you've got to quiet down to find space to deal with that internal noise, to ask yourself the difficult, scary questions about your life that you've been avoiding, yourself, avoiding asking. Like, why am I so sad all the time? Why do my kids not listen to me? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why do I have no hope? Why do I hate myself? And when the list goes on, but we like to drown ourselves with the external noise so that we never have to deal with those things. True silence is finding both. But it's not just silence. We need silence and solitude because dealing with the internal noise requires a mechanism to deal with it, and that's in solitude. 
Solitude is different from isolation. Isolation is just being alone. Isolation is the tactic of Satan, right? The Bible says he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and roaring lions don't go after the pack, they go after the one who has been isolated from the pack. When you are isolated, when you are alone, you put a target on your back for Satan's attacks, which, by the way, should make us very wary of a world that so quickly decides isolation is the best thing for us. Solitude is different, though. Solitude is not just being alone. It's being alone with God. Being alone with God. Sometimes people say this to me, um, I don't feel God's presence in my life. Or I feel like God is trying to say something to me, but I don't know what it is. Or I just have these questions, but I can't seem to find the answers. Every time I want to ask them, have you been alone with God? I mean, just for a moment, let's change this picture and not talk about being alone with God, but let's talk about being alone with a spouse. If you feel like you're not very close to your spouse or you feel like your spouse is trying to tell you something, but you can't figure out what it is, or if you have some questions you want to ask your spouse, but you can't find the space or time to do it, what do you need? To be alone with your spouse. Because it's only in those quiet places where you are alone where you can have those important conversations about the things you're wondering, share your darkest fears, your greatest goals, to be intimate with one another, to know each other in a way that nobody else knows them. Frankly, if you were a person who said, I want to be married, but I don't really want to spend any alone time with my spouse, I might say to you, I don't think marriage is for you then. Isn't the same true with God? If you can't find the time or space to be alone with God... Why expect your relationship to be healthy with him? Maybe God's not really for you. If you just want to go and live your own life, be my guest. You're free. But if you want to follow the way of Jesus, if you want to take his yoke upon you, it's going to require investing in this. Okay, so what does it look like? Silence and solitude, what could it possibly look like? I think it could look like any number of things, and maybe you could just start by thinking about what would you do with your spouse if you were alone? You might have a conversation, right? You might have a two-way conversation. You're both sharing things about what's going on in your life. Or maybe you'd have a one-way conversation where one of you is sharing more and the other one's mostly listening. Or you might play a game together or do an activity or you might just sit in silence together. Any number of things and all of them can add life to your relationship. Well, the same is true with God. For some of you, you might start by praying the Psalms. Praying the Psalms. Have you ever been in any sort of, sort of marriage counseling? This is a common tactic, especially for marriages that are very weak. Um, counselors will actually tell the partners of the marriage to go through certain role-playing. Like, they'll read a script, actually, and have scripted conversations with one another just to start them down the road of rebuilding conversation. If your relationship with God is not close, if it is not lively, if you don't feel his presence, maybe you've got to start there with scripted conversations with God. God gave you 150 of them. Pray the Psalms. You might also read a lot of scripture. Like, today's the day God's just going to do the talking, and I'm just going to do the listening. And I'm going to let scripture wash over me, two, three, four, five chapters, whatever I need to have in order to just let God speak, let him be God. Or, you might read a little bit of scripture and study it very deeply. Like those moments you have with your spouse where you're, you're working on a, a problem and you just have to keep talking about it and keep asking questions and keep trying to understand. Like you might do that with God. Only a verse, only a couple words, but you're going to dig deep on those. You're going to ask for help. You're going you're to wonder. You're going to meditate on those words. Or you might pray a lot. Maybe this is the time where you get to do all the talking and God does all the listening. And you might just pour out your heart to him with whatever's going on in your life. Or... 
you might just enjoy being in each other's company, right? Just sitting silently in the presence of God, doing nothing else, enjoying the fact that you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read the scripture. You don't have to go do anything. You just get to be. You have nothing to prove. You have no one to please. The God of the universe is already delighted in you. So just enjoy being. How great would it be to just sit and stare at a wall and enjoy that you don't have to? In the same way that you might enjoy your spouse's company with no judgment. So it might look like any number of these things, but I should at this point add a couple of caveats, like things that you should avoid as you go through this. Very quickly, the first is that we should stop trying to hear from God apart from Scripture. So sometimes people have this idea that if I go find my quiet time with God, then God's just going to like reveal a special message to me. I might hear a voice or something like that. Um, I'm not going to muzzle God and say that he can't do that, but I will say he said he doesn't need to. Right? He's already given you Scripture. If God wants to talk, he's going to talk to you through the scripture that he wrote down, his word given to you. Now, to be clear, you might read scripture and get an application that's very specific to your life. That's great. Do me a favor. Double check it with somebody. Because in the same way that you can misunderstand your spouse, you can misunderstand God. And oftentimes you need someone to help bring clarity to that. So ask your pastor, ask the trusted friend. But just don't expect it to be some like magical, mystical experience. Second, don't become academic about it. I think this is a problem for us because we're Lutherans and Lutherans have a wonderful history of being very academic about faith. I'm not even saying this from a place of bias. Lutheran pastors are more highly educated than the average pastorate, just unequivocally true. Um, but that has unattended consequences for us, which is that we tend to look at scripture by default as an academic exercise. Like I need to read this many chapters or I need to find these doctrines or I need to put it all into some system. Don't do that. <laughs> You know what kind of meetings have agendas? Not marriage meetings, <laughs> right? Business meetings have agendas. If you're going into this meeting with God with an agenda, you are treating him like a business partner. I'm not saying don't have a plan, don't have something to talk about, but don't go into it like you have to check all the boxes to get through it. And then finally, don't do Hindu meditation, please. Um, Hindu meditation is detaching from everything. Right? It's saying that none of this really matters because kind of like droplets that are all coming together into one kind of puddle of water, everything that seems separate, every person, everything, every, every bit of the cosmos is all coming back into the all soul. And so none of it really matters. Don't worry about it. Don't care about it. That's not Christian meditation. Christian meditation is saying all those things, you don't have to worry about them because God's got them. But because God's got them and God cares about them, you have the opportunity to participate in them. And so rather than inserting yourself into somebody else's life or their problems with the feeling that you have to pull it off, you can know God is pulling it off and he's going to use me. It's not about me. It's about God and what he's doing. Okay, so that's silence and solitude. Let me give you some tips on how to get started with this. Okay, how can you make this quiet time part of your life? First of all, pick a time. Pick a time. It's got to be a time that you know you can get every single day. You can't go into your day thinking, I hope I find time. I might get time at this time. You have to find a time every single day you know you can be there because otherwise it's just not going to be consistent. For most people, that's the first thing in the morning, right? Get up early, before the kids get up, before you have to go to work, first thing in the morning, do it then. For some people, though, it might be nap time for the kids, my lunch break, which is always at the same time, might be different, but you've got to have a time. And how long do you do this? I would start with 15 minutes. I don't think it's got to be a big, long time. 
It'll be a short time, but let it be purposeful time. Second, you need a place. Not just because you need a place that's externally quiet, but also because um, of the 11 million sensory receptors in your body, over 90% of them are attached to your eyes. So like how you view things is seminal in building habits. So if you want to build a habit, being in the same place to do that habit every single time is just how your brain works. So find a place that's consistent. Maybe that's your desk. Maybe that's your couch. Maybe that's the chair out in your front porch. Find a place and make that always the place. It'll build the habit for you. And then finally, get a partner. Um, obviously, this is solitude. It's being alone with God. But I do think you need partner support in this. You need somebody who is going to encourage you, hold you accountable to those things. It's going to be the buddy who texts you and said, hey, did you get your quiet time today? It's going to be the spouse who says, let me take the kids for half an hour so that you can go and be quiet with God. Somebody who's going to encourage you. But I think also somebody you can go to to talk about your time with God. So as an example, when I got married, my dad said to me, if you have marriage troubles, don't come talk to me. Because as much as I love Johanna, I cannot get away from the fact that I will be biased because you are my son. He said, you have to talk to somebody who loves both of you and Johanna and loves God if you have marriage troubles. I think that's great advice. Because too easily do we try to solve these problems that we might have with God and communication by ourselves, or we go to somebody who's biased against God or biased against us. The person who says, God, forget what he has to say. Do what you want. Or the person who says, I don't really care how you feel. Do what God says. You need somebody who loves both of you to be that person who supports you. So who's that going to be? It's going to be your spouse, it's going to be your friend, it's going to be your father, your mother, pastor. Pick that person. Who's going to be your partner on this? So this is silence and solitude. Finding a time to be externally quiet, to deal with the internal noise with God and his word and prayer and enjoying the fact that you don't have to. So let me finish with two things. First of all, I want you to see what's at stake. And this is from John Mark Homer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says, when we don't practice this Jesus soul habit, we reap these consequences. We feel distant from God, end up living off someone else's spirituality via a podcast feed or a book or a one-page devotional we read before we rush out the door to work. We feel distant from ourselves. We lose sight of our identities and our callings. We get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. We feel the undercurrent of anxiety that rarely, if ever, goes away. This sense that we're always behind, always playing catch-up, never done. Then we get exhausted. We wake up, and our first thoughts are, already? I can't wait to go to bed. We lag through our days, our low-grade energy on loan from our stimulants of choice. Even when we catch up on our sleep, we feel a deeper kind of tired. And then we turn to our escapes of choice. We run out of energy to do what's actually life-giving for our souls, say, prayer. And instead, we turn to a cheap fix, another glass of wine, a new show that's streaming online, our social media feeds, or pornography. We become easy prey for the tempter, just furthering our sense of distance from God and our own souls. And then the emotional health, unhealth sets in. We start living from the surface of our lives, not the core we're reactionary. The smallest thing is a trigger, a throwaway line from a boss, a snide comment from a coworker, a suggestion from a spouse or a roommate. It doesn't take much. We lose our tempers. We bark at our kids. We get defensive. We sulk. We feel angry or sad or both. On the flip side, here's the alternative. We find our quiet places, a park down the street, a reading nook at home, a morning routine that begins with the little, before the little ones are awake, and we go away with Jesus. We take our time, Maybe it's not a full hour, 
We're there long enough to decompress from all the noise and traffic and stress and nonstop stimulation of modern society. Sometimes all we need is a few minutes. Other times, an hour isn't enough. Other times, we gratefully take the time we can get. We slow down. We breathe. We come back to the present. Then we start to feel. At first, we feel a whole gamut of human emotions, not just joy and gratitude and celebration and restfulness, but also sadness and doubt and anger and anxiety. Usually, I feel all those lousy emotions first. That's just how it goes. We face the good, the bad, and the ugly in our own hearts, our worry, our depression, our hope, our desire for God, our lack of desire for God, our sense of God's presence or our sense of his absence, our fantasies, our realities, all the lies we believe and the truth we come home to, our motivations, our addictions, the coping mechanisms we reach for, all of this is exposed and painfully so. But rather than leaking out on those we love the most, it's exposed in the safe place of the Father's love and voice. And in our ears, we sense his voice cut through the cacophony of all other voices, which slowly fade to the deafening roar of silence. In that silence, we hear God speak his love over us, speak our identities and calling. We get his perspective on life and our humble good places in it. And then we come to a place of freedom. And secondly, I want to tell you a story about Mary, Queen of Scots. Maybe you know her. She was a vicious character. She would just kill people for no reason. She didn't like them. She would just kill them. There's a story of a man who was called in to see Mary, the Queen of Scots. And one of his friends said to him, aren't you scared? I mean, she might kill you. And his answer was, how could I be afraid of 10 minutes with the queen when I've already spent an hour with the king today? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to come away with you to a quiet place. Help us to find those quiet places, those places of external silence so that we can deal with the internal noise with you. Give us your words in those moments. Speak to us through the scripture. Hear our prayers. Help us enjoy your presence. And then move us out into the world as people who don't have to, but get the opportunity to be your hands and feet and mouth in this world to bring a new humanity to the people who are desperately in need of it. We ask that in your name.